Mark chapter 14, um, <clears throat> a couple of services ago, I, uh, I just took a couple of services to hit the pause button on what we're doing and began to look at the incarnation of Jesus from the perspective of the different gospel writers. And we looked at John and how uh, John looks at Jesus um, as the Son of God, as God the Son. He is God in the flesh. We saw that very clearly. And then in Luke, we saw that uh, Luke looks at Jesus as the Son of Man and emphasizes uh, His humanity. And I thought to myself, you know, how could I preach that for Mark? And what's, what's so amazing about this is there, there is no greater text in the book of Mark to preach on the Incarnation than the one that we were going to be on this morning anyway. In our study through the book of Mark, um, some people have said, well, how in the world can you find the Incarnation in Mark? Because it doesn't even say anything about His birth. The book of Mark begins with Jesus' ministry. How can you say that anything is said about the Incarnation? But really, in a sense, that's the whole point because... Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant, and who cares about the birth of a servant? And we see the suffering servant uh, really begin here. We're, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, as we've been going through the book of Mark over the past about year and a half, we've seen that, as I said, he looks at Jesus, Mark does, as a surf, suffering servant is prophesied by Isaiah, concerned more with his works than his words. Uh, we've seen so many instances of, of healings and casting out devils, raising of the dead, training of the disciples, constantly going from one event to another. Uh, we've been in crucifixion week now ever since chapter 11. But for the past few weeks, we've been at the Lord's table and we've seen Jesus as our Passover lamb. We've seen Him uh, institute the Lord's Supper and replace the Passover as a ceremony. Uh, Judas has now left the group in order to get the authorities and betray Jesus and arrest Him. And last week specifically, uh, we saw that Christ once again prophesied to His disciples about His coming death and resurrection. And we talked about Jesus' last words. And of course, they weren't His literal last words or even His last words to His disciples, but they were His last instructions to them before He was arrested. And today, these are the, actually the last words that Jesus said to His disciples before He's arrested. And we find ourselves in Gethsemane. And so uh, let's read this text this morning. Mark 14 and verse 32, the Word of God says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And He saith to His disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And He taketh with Him Peter and James and John, and begin to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but that what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth him sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. 
And he cometh a third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your word. God, I'm so thankful that you came uh, to die for us, Lord. And I pray that uh, as I preach this morning, uh, Lord, that you would just fill me, your Holy Spirit, into me, sin and self. And I pray that you would find us where we are. God, if there's somebody lost that doesn't know Jesus in the part of their sins, they would be saved today. Lord, if there's somebody just hurting, maybe they're just bogged down by the trials of life, that we would find comfort. Uh, Lord, that you're our great high priest and you're touched with a feeling of our infirmity, Lord. Just hide me behind the shadow of the cross and we'll thank you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. I want to look this morning on the thought of the mystery of Gethsemane. The mystery of Gethsemane. There's a lot of mystery surrounding this text that we just read. And certainly I'm not going to scratch the surface, but I'll just go ahead and throw this out here. When we talk about the mystery of Gethsemane, we're actually talking about the mystery of the humanity of Christ. There is no greater text in all the Bible that reveals to us the humanity of Christ. And, and we understand a big word here, the, the hypostatic union of Christ. He's truly God and He's truly man. We understand that. And when talking about the hypostatic union, we, we cannot make the mistake of placing so much emphasis on the humanity of Christ that it outweighs His deity. I've, I've seen people and I've read after people, it kind of makes me cringe. They just kind of, they cutesify Jesus and I don't like that. And we don't need to cutesify Jesus because He's God, and we never need to forget that. But on the other end, we don't need to emphasize the deity of Christ so much that it outweighs His humanity. Now, me personally, just in my nature, if I'm going to err to one side or the other, I would rather make Him too much God than too much man. But I believe that even erring on that side, we miss some great biblical truths if we're not careful. So I'm dealing with a very controversial subject this morning. But, you know, if we take it too far and we emphasize His deity so much, we, we really do lose a lot of good biblical truth. And I know this is an extreme example, but when you take things too far, uh, this is an example of where somebody can end up. But in the second century, the heretical group known as the Gnostics, uh, they went so far as to teach what was known as docetism. And docetism said that Jesus didn't actually even have an earthly human body. He just appeared to. And so when he was actually on the cross, he didn't even feel any pain. And so you can take it way too far. And so you have to try to find that balance there. Um, but we have to preach that balance. And so uh, when, when we talk about certain things in the Bible, like the hypostatic union of Christ... Uh, I would teach it the same way that I would the Trinity. Uh, we've often talked about the paradox principle where in the Bible you have two truths that are both true, but you can't logically connect them. I've, I've talked about the Trinity as being one God, and yet He's manifested in three persons. You cannot logically connect that, but they're both true. So when I come to a text about God being one Lord, I'm going to preach that. And when I come to a text that highlights the fact that He's manifested in three distinct persons, I'm going to preach that. Uh, we talk about the sovereignty of God versus the uh, responsibility of man as it pertains to salvation. Both of those are true. I can't completely connect those. And when I get to those texts, I'm going to preach each one of them. 
When we come to the hypostatic union, Christ is truly man, and yet He's truly God. When I come to a text on both those, I'm going to preach it. And this is a great text on the humanity of Christ, so understand what I'm talking about this morning. Um, And I find it interesting that the only gospel writer that did not include the agony in Gethsemane is John. And why is that? Well, what is John highlighting? He's highlighting Jesus as the Son of God, His Godhood. The other synoptic gospels all talk about the horror that Jesus endured in Gethsemane. But before we get into our message this morning, I'm going to lay two ground rules that I think will save us a lot of misunderstanding as we talk about the humanity of Christ. The first one, and I mentioned this the other night when we went through the book of Luke, but Christ has never been limited in His deity. Never. He is truly 100% God. He's never been limited in that. But He has been limited in His humanity. So you can talk about His human limitations without insulting or taking away from His deity. I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, But the second uh, ground rule that I want to mention is this. The question is, how much like us was Jesus when He walked this earth in a human body? And here's the ground rule that I would like to lay. I think that Jesus was exactly like we are in every asset, every every aspect, every way, except this one. I don't think that Jesus was born with a sinful nature. And I think that's the biggest point of the virgin birth. He didn't have an earthly father. He wasn't under the curse of Adam. And I'll be honest with you, I believe in the, what's known as the impeccability of Christ, which means that He could not have sinned. I don't think Jesus could have sinned. I think when Satan tempted Him in the wilderness, I think He was wasting His time. Because the Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil. He was God in the flesh, wasn't He? So I think in every aspect, Jesus was exactly like us, except for that He was not born with a sinful nature under the curse of Adam like we are. Now, um, I believe that Jesus uh, experienced hunger. We see this in the Scripture. He experienced thirst and pain. I believe when it was hot outside, He got hot. I believe when it was cold outside, He got cold. Uh, I have no reason to believe uh, that Jesus didn't experience sickness. Some people get upset when you say that. I have no reason to believe He didn't. Uh, We know that He... Uh, could be harmed bodily. I have no reason to believe that when he was growing up working as a carpenter, maybe he slipped with a tool or something. He injured himself. It's not like it just nothing happened like the bionic man. I believe he experienced those things. Um, he experienced heartbreak and poverty. I mean, this time of year we talk about the virgin birth. His first bed was a feed trough. That's what a manger is. He experienced poverty. He, dis- he experienced dependence on others. Can you imagine in your mind The God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, having to depend on earthly parents 100% for everything as he grew up. That's just, it just boggles the mind. And so when we talk about the humanity of Christ, I want to try to deal with the question, how can Christ in his humanity be an encouragement to his people? I think this is so important. And I'm just going to be honest. This is one of those texts I mentioned to you a few weeks ago. There's just, I mean, you always have reverence for the Word of God, but there's some text you come to that you really just need to have reverence for the situation. And this is one of those texts. This is the, in my mind, this is the weightiest text in the Bible. Certainly, certainly in that upper echelon, <laughs> in a class all its own. Uh, I, I don't even think that we 
really recognize and understand what's going on here. And I'm going to try my best to do it justice, but I won't. So how can the humanity of Christ bring encouragement to His people? Well, the first thing I want you to understand is the intercession of Christ. The intercession of Christ for His people. Look at verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And He saith to His disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. Now, now this text gives us such great insight into Christ as our high priest. Uh, and really, this here is the central point of this text, and it, it really sets up the rest of the message because uh, Christ is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And so when we find Him experiencing pain and, and going through trials, then we better understand that he, he understands those things. And He grieves with us and for us. And not only is Christ praying for Himself, but we see clearly uh, in the book of John, this same uh, pa- uh, parallel passage, John 17, we see the prayer from Christ to God the Father. And even in the darkest hour when He is about to be arrested, He is praying for us. Isn't that amazing? That He is praying and interceding uh, for us. And the important thing to understand, he's, Christ is not just praying in personal prayers. He feels our pain. And we're going to spend the rest of the message looking at what he went through. Uh, but I think about Hebrews 4 and uh, verses 14 through 16. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the name Gethsemane means olive press, uh, where the oil is crushed out of the olive. And Christ was crushed for us, and therefore He feels our pain. He's, he's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And, and that's really why we go through certain things. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 5, it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And so, you know, this is... A little bit off topic, but I'm not going to stay here, but just a second. When we talk about uh, evil and suffering in the world, we see that, that Christ is about to be uh, destroyed by the greatest act of wickedness that man could have ever devised, the, the killing of the Son of God. And some might say, well, you know, if God was really in control or if He was really all-loving, then evil and suffering wouldn't even exist in the world, and we wouldn't go through evil and suffering. And I've been studying on this subject for about a year now in depth. And I came across a quote the other day. I'm reading a book by Randy Alcorn called, uh, If God is Good. And he made the statement, he said, This may not be the best possible world, but he said it is the avenue to the best possible world. And he said, If we acknowledge that certain good things come out of suffering evil, we already admit there's a need for it. Without evil and suffering, we could never experience true freedom. We could never understand compassion for one another, having never known hurt. We could never known empathy. We could never understand the contrast of what Jesus went through to defeat evil and suffering. And then uh, Alcorn made a statement that, man, I just I circled, highlight, underline. 
He said that God, obviously we know this, that Christ is preparing us as His bride. He is preparing us as His people. He is preparing us for eternity. And Alcorn asked the question. He said, if we get to keep all of the character virtues that we learn through enduring a world of evil and suffering, and we get to keep those character virtues all throughout eternity, even long after evil and suffering are gone, would it not be worth it? I thought, wow. <laughs> Ten million years from now and the evil and suffering is we can't even remember and we're still left with the things that God taught us. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, the thing is, Christ didn't even exempt Himself from pain and suffering. And that's why when He prays for us, uh, He's not praying from some ivory tower. He is praying for us as the suffering servant, as one who has been there. Uh, I mentioned the other night, uh, there, you know, I've been a victim of well-meaning people sometimes that uh, if I'm going through a really serious trial or maybe something we've been through and are going through and and, you know, people just almost feel an obligation to give you advice, and they've never been through anything even remotely close to what you're going through. It just kind of sounds like a book answer, doesn't it? I, I like those people, man, they've been there, and they can say, listen to what God did for me, and this is what I was going through. It's not uh, based on credit. <laughs> they paid cash for what they've been through. And here Christ, He, he hurts with us. He, he grieves with us, and... He is touched by the feeling of our infirmity. He prays for us, fervently for us. And I'm so thrilled that God saw fit to put that prayer in John 17. And we can see how the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us. (laughs) He's interceding for us even right now at the right hand of the Father. And listen to what Robert Murray Mitchan said. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. Isn't that a wonderful thought? We see Christ in His intercession here in the garden. His humanity. But let's look at number two. When we look at the humanity of Christ and how it can bring us comfort as His people, I want to see the intimidation of Christ. Look at verse 33. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and to begin to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now this is very important because people can get touchy about this. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Um, this term sore amazed here, when it says Jesus was sore amazed, uh, that comes from a Greek word that may, it literally means to be struck with terror. To be struck with terror. Jesus was terrified. He was afraid. And I know sometimes it hurts us to hear that. Well, you know, Jesus is, there's no way he was afraid of anything, but I'm fixing to show you. Um, and, and here's the thing if Jesus had never experienced fear, especially fear on this level, how could He comfort us in our fear, in our terror? He can't. Uh, But understand, too, we're talking about the humanity of Christ and not His deity. I want to reemphasize that. But third, um, 
Let me say this. If, if we're going to say that Jesus experienced fear, I want to be specific about what that fear is and, and what it means. I don't believe that Christ was afraid of torture or death. I don't. I don't believe he was afraid of a physical death. Although, uh, I don't know about you, it wouldn't be on my to-do list. But I don't think that's what he was afraid of. And Hebrews gives an excellent commentary on what we just read. Because it said in Hebrews 5 verses 7 through 9, uh, who talking about Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane here, with crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And so it says here that he was praying to God the Father uh, to deliver him from death. Now this is so important. He is not asking God to deliver him from the cross. In other words, he's saying, God, don't let me die on the cross. He's saying, deliver me out of that death. He's talking about the resurrection. And so he is putting his total faith and trust in God the Father to be raised from the dead on the third day. I believe his fear was being eternally separated from God the Father. And even in that, it shows the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find here in Hebrews it said uh, that he, he heard him in the things he feared. And we know that God uh, raised him from the dead. And I believe that this speaks to the character of Christ. You know, I believe the things that we fear say a lot about who we are. Some, some people's greatest fear is about what their stocks are doing or how much money they have in the bank or about their bills, or about getting the next great house, or the newest car, or the finest clothes, and never giving a thought to the things of eternity. Never even thinking about it. It's so amazing to me as I've, as I've grown older, and I, I just turned 37, I'm, I'm not hobbling just yet. <laughs> but I have learned a few things. And it's so amazing to me, the common thread. I mean, it's, no matter where I worked at, no matter what job I had, uh, no matter who I really got in any kind of serious conversation with them, how long I, I knew them, everybody seems to go about life as, as if this life is all there is. Like, they don't even think about death. The fact their heart could stop this minute, and they're not ready. They're not thinking about that. In fact, they don't want to think about those things. I mean, you can talk about football with them, which, by the way, is a pretty sore subject where I come from. You can talk about football. You can talk about politics. I mean, you can, talk, you can talk about anything. You can talk about vulgar things, and they'll be fine with that. But you start talking about Jesus, or you start talking about God, or the reality of death, or whatever else, they, just free, they don't want to talk about it. They just freeze up because men and women in their natural state are full-time truth suppressors. We're really good at it. And yet, we need to think about these things. And here Christ is afraid, I believe, of, of separation from his father. He felt like he was forsaken by God. But some people are just concerned about what others think about them. Their greatest fear is about what other people think about them. That's a sad thing because the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9 and 27. And so uh, my question is, do you fear 
being separated from God for all eternity. That ought to be the greatest fear that you have. The Bible says uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And without that, without the foundation of God, you're reduced to absurdity. And isn't it wonderful to know that Christ can comfort us in our fears because He experienced real, genuine fear Himself. We see Christ's humanity in His intimidation. Isn't it comforting to know? And I know that I felt this way before. I have been terrified before. I have been afraid before. I have been worried before. I have... And what's so amazing is, it seems like in our trials, the vast majority of the time, the worst part of the trial is our imagination about how it's going to turn out. Isn't that true? I mean, we, we literally destroy our minds and we keep ourselves up at night and we pace the floor and we carry this burden around in our chest. And it turns out many times the trial isn't nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be, as we imagined in our mind. And yet Christ even understands that. We see Christ in His intimidation. But then thirdly, I believe we see Christ in His isolation. Look at verse 36. And He said, Abba, which is an Aramaic phrase for daddy or father. And it's, really, it's very personal. Uh, the Jews didn't talk to God like that. This is very intimate here. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth him sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour so much for never forsaken you, even to death? You can't even stay up an hour and pray. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh a third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest, for it is enough. The hour was come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed under the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And I'm really, I'm really going to park it here for a minute. Because if you leave here, having not gotten what I'm fixing to say, we're going to miss the main theme here. And I believe that the most important thing to understand here about the Garden of Gethsemane is that this was the time and place in which God the Father placed our sins upon Christ. This is when our sin was imputed to Christ. And um, there's three types of imputation in the Bible. And imputation simply means to charge to somebody else's account. You have Adam's sin imputed to us. You have our sin imputed to Christ here. And then you have Christ's righteousness imputed to those that are saved. And so it's important to point out here, though, because we live in this part of the country, that the Mormons emphasize the Garden of Gethsemane so much, they actually say that's where the atonement took place. And that is emphatically not true. Um, The sin was imputed here, but it was atoned for at the cross. That's why, you know, the cross really doesn't have a predominant place in Mormon theology. If you'll notice, you're not going to see any crosses on the wards. They just don't talk about it much. Um, And I I guess because it's gentler. 
It's easier to talk about a Jesus praying in the garden than it is one being slain by his own father on the cross. We don't like to talk about that. But um, that is just not true. But it does begin here. Um, but this is, no wonder Christ is terrified. I mean, in fact, if he's wearing our sin, what does sin do? It separates us from God, right? No wonder he's terrified. No wonder he feels forsaken by the Father. No wonder he is physically falling down. He can barely stand and he is sweating, as it were, uh, great drops of blood. He is wearing our sin. And what a picture this is because, as I mentioned, in the Garden of Eden, our sin was imputed to us through Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. But because of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, our sin was imputed to Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you see that reversal there of the second Adam? We talked about that the other night when we looked at Luke. But what I want you to get here, Christ is completely alone here. He is alone. He is bearing the weight of our sin. God the Father doesn't seem to answer Him. And He can't even get His disciples to pray with Him or keep Him company. I love what David Garland said. This is gold here. He said, In Gethsemane, Jesus meets the dreadful silence of heaven. There is no reassuring voice from heaven proclaiming, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. No dove descends. No ministering angels come to serve Him. God has already spoken, and His Son must obey. Jesus overcomes the silence, fights off the human temptation to do as He wills, and through prayer acquiesces to God's will. He will not try to evade the cup, either by slipping away in the dark or by resorting to violence. He will accept the nails of the cross as He accepted the stones in the desert. That's really good. And when it talks about the cup, let this cup pass from me. The cup is the judgment and wrath of God. In fact, the Old Testament talks about the judgment of God and it talks about those who will drink the wrath of God to the dregs, all the way to the dregs. And so that's talking about taking the cup and turning it all the way up. He took all of the wrath of God. And so here's what I I really want you to get. I, I want you to feel the weight of what is happening here in the garden. And in order to do that... We need to recognize all of the characters in this scene. And, and I know this sounds silly, but I, I couldn't help myself. I, we took the kids and Leah, we kind of just made a family outing of getting everybody's hair cut except for mine. And uh, so we, we went to the beauty school there in the mall and everybody's doing their thing. And, and I'm, I've got like a stack of books. You know, I know everybody just looks, look at that nerd over there, you know it. I've got my books over here, and I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm studying. And I, and I get to this thought here, and I just start crying right there in the middle of beauty school. And Leah goes, are you crying? I was like, no, no. <laughs> but, but think about this. We, we need to recognize all the characters that are here in this scene. The first one, obviously, is Jesus. second one is the disciples. I'm sure Satan and the forces of evil are here. They've got nothing better to do that day, I can assure you. They're here. But there's another unseen group of characters who are here in the garden. Care to guess who it is? It's us. It's you. You say, well, I wasn't even born. How was I there? Because our sin was there. Imputed to Him. Thrown on Him by God the Father. And, and this is what really got me. Have you ever 
have you ever really messed up? And I mean, you sin. I mean, you, there were times even before I got saved, I, I would do things wrong and I would feel really guilty about that. Uh, I would feel like that I had failed my parents or, you know, maybe as I got older, maybe there's been times where I feel like I failed uh, my wife or maybe failed my kids. And there's definitely been times I felt like I failed God. You ever felt like that and you, you just feel, even as a lost person, I'd say especially as a lost person, you, you feel the, the nastiness of your sin. You feel the weight and the burden of your sin. You feel so ashamed for what you've done. And then you, you think to yourself, how could I have done that? And then lo and behold, you go and do it again. Or you do something even worse. And you, you think to yourself in those moments of guilt and shame, you say, well, I'll never do that again. But you do it again. And you, you do even worse than that. And you know what I'm talking about. It's just being a slave to that sin nature. Thank God we've been saved from that. But you remember how horrible that felt. And even as a Christian, sometimes you, you mess up and you feel the weight of that and the guilt and the shame and just how dirty you feel. Can I tell you that Jesus felt that exact same thing? But here's the thing. He didn't feel it on His behalf. He didn't feel it because of His sin. He felt it because of my sin. He felt those things for and because of me. Can you imagine if we could take a, a projector screen and look at the records of all the sin that we have committed, the personal sin? It would be terrifying. And yet He wore those. Listen, Jesus Christ didn't just die for an opportunity. Jesus Christ, He didn't just die to open some door or to to make some kind of example for sin so that God could say, now see, that's what I think about sin, so I can forgive you now. No. He died a vicarious, substitutionary death for my sin. For the sin of His people. A specific list of sins. Every single personal sin that I have or ever will commit, He wore it. And it started here in the garden. Can you think about that? What a Savior. What a God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, And He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I think it was John MacArthur that said that uh, Jesus Christ was treated, talking about by God the Father, Jesus Christ was treated on the cross as if He lived my life. But because of the cross and because of salvation and imputed righteousness because of Jesus, He treats us as if we lived His life. <laughs> Isaiah 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, Who His own self bear our sins... In His body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. You were healed. We see such a great illustration of the suffering servant in His humanity in Gethsemane. But we also see His priestly work of intercession and what a great comfort that is. Can I say today as we come in for a close, if you are feeling alone today, if you feel forsaken by God, and by the way, I've been there. 
where you feel like your prayers aren't even going past the ceiling. You don't feel like you're getting any kind of answer. Jesus was in that same situation. He felt that same way. If you've ever been betrayed, Christ did also. In fact, we're going to be in our text probably next week about Judas and how he betrayed him with a kiss. He knows what it is to be betrayed. Um, if you've ever been struck by fear or terror, Christ did also. He understands and He cares. Have you ever been burdened down with the weight of your sin? Perhaps even fearing the judgment of God? Christ did too, but not for His sin, but for our sin. He understands and He cares. Matthew 11 verse 28 says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're lost, let me say, come to Jesus for forgiveness. You don't have to carry that burden of sin anymore. You don't have to be buried in the nastiness and the dirt of your sin. You don't have to constantly fear death. Listen, if there is one thing that the past two years have shown us, is that people are afraid of death. They're terrified of death. They fear just about everything. They fear people's opinions. They fear death. They fear viruses. They fear offending anyone, but they don't fear God. Fear God and live. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in Him and His finished work to save you from your sin. You can be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Let me say this finally, if you are saved, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know that you have a relationship with Him, then perhaps the burdens of life are weighing heavy on you, but I want to encourage you to come boldly unto the throne of grace that you can find help because Jesus really cares. He's really touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Our great high priest understands better than we do, and he cares. And if Satan can ever get you to the point where you doubt the goodness of God, you'll lose all hope. That's when somebody quits, is when they begin to doubt the goodness of God. They begin to doubt uh, that God really loves us and he really cares, but he does. And he's got a plan, and he's working it to the good of those that love him. So we see Jesus in His humanity. I think we can be encouraged by the things He went through, the things He felt. And if you're not saved today, I would just come talk to me afterward. We can talk, pray, whatever the case may be. If you're struggling, if you're burdened, give it to the Lord today. I mean, the Bible says, cast all your care upon Him for He cares for you. Throw it down, cast it down. Don't, Don't tote it out of here today. Throw it down. He can carry the weight. You can. He can.